I'm Anthony Penn. Welcome to Pen Drop. We have a wonderful guest with us today, Sasha Sagan. Uh, Sasha is a native of Ithaca, New York, and a graduate of NYU. She has worked as a television producer, filmmaker, writer, and speaker in the U.S. and abroad. Her essays and interviews on death, history, and ritual through a secular lens have appeared in The Cut, O, and Oprah magazine, among others. She is a contributing editor for British fashion magazine, Violet Book, and she is the author of For Small Creatures Such As We, Rituals for Finding Meaning in Our Unlikely World. Sasha, thanks for joining me today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, and, you know, I'm really looking forward to this. And, and I want to start with this question. What motivated this book and why did you pick this particular set of rituals? Well, you know, I think I grew up secular. Um, my father was the astronomer and educator Carl Sagan, and he and my mom, writer-producer Andrianne, raised me with this sense of awe and wonder about the majesty of the universe and, and at, with this sense that science was not just a series of facts, but a pathway to deep understanding and um, connection to our place in the grandeur. And it was this really amazing way to grow up. But when I was 14, my dad died. And, you know, when you lose someone, no matter what you believe or don't believe, it calls out for some kind of ritual, some kind of tradition, something to mark this change from someone you love being there to not being there. And I think that that was, you know, now many years ago, the first kernel of an idea um, that led to this book. So for those of us who are secular or agnostic or atheist who don't see religion as the pathway to understanding, but rather science as that tool that we have to, to grasp the, the world and the universe around us, how do we acknowledge and mark and process the changes in life, not just something as final as death, but, you know, marriage, coming of age, when a baby is born, and even the, the changing of the seasons, you know, the solstices and equinoxes. For so much of history, religion has been the infrastructure with which we have marked and processed these changes, but I really don't think it has to be. And so that's sort of what set me off on this path to, to write this book. And um, the rituals that I included and the rituals that um, I found most thrilling to research were the ones where after you sort of peel off the first layer of the time and place, um, there is a real scientific phenomena at work, like coming of age, right? Puberty. It's so easy to see a quinceanera or a bar mitzvah or, you know, all these other rituals um, around the world throughout history as so different at, from one another or from what we might be familiar with. But when we just look beyond that first layer, it's just something that everyone experiences that is 
exciting and awkward and, you know, um, important for the future of the society. And I think those were the kinds of rituals that I found most, most beautiful, where there was something really scientifically tangible happening, um, and we found different ways as a species to celebrate it. When I was reading the book, I kept just thinking to myself, this book is just so graceful. And, and by you. that, I meant two, I mean two things. One, you're kind of patient with us as we learn to value the ordinary, to see something extraordinary in the ordinary, right? To kind of soak up what happens in these moments we tend to forget about. And, and I think that's often hard for us. But the other reason I, I think the book is so graceful is because you handle so well and so thoughtfully uh, a sticking point for so many secular humanists and religionists, and that is a willingness to talk in terms of both and to do it in a way that isn't simply angry and confrontational, but kind of sees what undergirds each. And, and I, as I was reading, I was asking myself this question. For Sasha, can secular humanism actually qualify as a religious orientation? Oh, that's such an interesting question. I mean, my association with a religion is that there is, I mean, there's almost this implication that it is, um, there is a lack of questioning and almost implied in it. And maybe that's not in the, you know, Oxford English uh, dictionary definition, but there is this sense like, you know, when someone says like, well, I mean, I don't do it religiously. You know what I mean? There's this sense of orthodoxy. There's this sense of like no room for your own interpretation or your own experience or your own, you know, taking it apart and putting it back together as you see fit. So I don't really see it as a religion because I think of it more of as a philosophy. And I think of it as something that is in a way very ancient. You know, my mom talks about... Um, post-Copernican stress disorder, <laughs> this idea that, <laughs> that for so much of history, the more deeply we understood our world and our universe and how the seasons change and, you know, what we're made of, the more deeply we understood our God or gods. And I think that it's, you know, only in the last few centuries that the tension between the information that we've been able to glean through the scientific method and the lore um, that we were taught from a time before that information was available have been at war. And I think that there is something profoundly beautiful about the idea that, you know, that sweeping sense of awe and majesty and that, like, like the hair on the neck, the back of your neck standing up, that feeling of connection and of a deep, powerful understanding of our place in this vastness. I think that there's something about that, you know, I sometimes hesitate to use the word spiritual because it has such a monotheistic connotation, but that's because English is a language that evolved among mostly monotheists. And so, you know, we have, we have the words that they use to describe what they were feeling about their experience and their worldview. But I think it's still, you know, until we have a better word, I think it still captures that feeling that, you know, when the first image of a black hole came back, or, you know, you have these moments where there is a scientific revelation or even just your own realization about, you know, something you never understood before, even if 
you know, you're the last person on earth to understand it. I think that there's something really um, powerful about that, that I don't really think of necessarily as religious, but as deep and profound and beautiful and as still fulfilling the same need that religion seeks to fill. You mentioned that word, spirituality, and, and it seems to me in the book, an underlying argument is there is no necessary conflict between science and spirituality. And I imagine for a whole lot of folks, that is just difficult to wrap their minds around. Um, but could you say a bit more concerning what you mean by spirituality? A and can you say a bit about the possibility of transcendence? Absolutely. I mean, I think I come, I mean, I'm coming from such a privileged perspective where I didn't have to shake off a religion to come to this philosophy. This is how my parents raised me. And I completely understand for people who were brought up, especially with a very strict, oppressive um, religious upbringing, who had to go through the very painful and difficult and courageous process of shaking that off and finding their own way. How, of course, there's going to be um, an aversion to certain elements of religious life and certain elements of, you know, even words that sort of evoke that feeling of whatever was unpleasant or not working for them or just didn't hold water that they had to reject and all the emotions that went along with that change. But for me, I think that I, I can, I'm able to sort of cherry pick the things that I love that I think are beautiful. And, you know, I think that the connection to, um, you know, your ancestors is a really powerful thing. And there are a lot of ways in which, that can bring a lot of joy, even if your philosophy is totally diametrically opposed to whatever theology or worldview they had. I think that there's a way that you can sort of find the beauty in, you know, certain traditions and let um, the parts that stand the test of time continue on and shake off the parts that don't. Because I think, you know, like everything, traditions and rituals and rites of passage have to mutate in order to survive, right? You no, know, even if you're the most orthodox, the most um, traditional person alive today, you are not doing things exactly the way your ancestors did them a thousand years ago. Right. You're just not. It's impossible, right? We're all letting these traditions grow and change over time, and they have to because it's the only only possibility other than just letting them fall by the wayside, which is fine too. But I think that there's sometimes this weight of obligation, this feeling of like, oh, my grandmother made such an effort to do these things this way. I don't want to be the first person in thousands of years to not do the special thing the same way she did them. But I think that, <laughs> you know, it's, it is, I mean, there's so much guilt. I mean, I'm also coming from a secular Jewish background, so maybe I'm just projecting. But I think there is this sense of like, oh, do I want to be the first person to break this chain? Right. And I think that the amazing thing is when we pull out and actually see the scope of human history, everything we're doing is brand new. 
And, you know, it's all it's all completely just from the yeah. last few seconds um, of human history. And so we can feel a little bit more freedom, I think, um, in letting the things that we don't feel connected to fall away, but still finding ways to mark time and to acknowledge that, you know, every day is not the same and the seasons right. change and children grow up and people get married and people die. And we have these phases in life that are beautiful and deserve recognition, um, the heartbreaking ones and the joyful ones. And I think that we have to be able to find a way to get that um, without relying on theologies that we no longer think reflect our reality. You know, in the introduction, I didn't miss, uh, mention your parents uh, because I wanted to center you. And I also wanted to follow your lead in terms of how your family came up. But you mentioned them. Yeah. And so th there was something that really stuck out for me. Early in the book, you, you mentioned a piece of your family philosophy. And it's a powerful statement. You say, for small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. That reminds me of Albert Camus' statement. Absurdity is king, but love saves us from it. Can you can you give us a sense of what your parents meant by that? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, as we've sort of zoomed out as a species and gone from seeing ourselves, you know, over the, you know, thousand few thousand years from seeing just our region just our little corner of the planet to seeing our whole planet to seeing our solar system to seeing the vastness of the universe i mean it's really easy to just go right into the existential crisis of we are tiny we live for the blink of an eye and then we die and the universe is vast and the sun's going to explode and like just go down that rabbit hole um to like a full blown panic attack like I get it I've been there but I think once we go through that existential crisis um like what's on the other side that is beautiful mm -hmm. and meaningful and I think it's that we're here right now together and the love you know being part of um a family a relationship having a close group of friends having you know, other people in your little lifeboat with you for this moment that we're here is not just a consolation prize. It's a amazing, astonishing, beautiful thing. And to have that deep connection, you know, is is so um, it, it's I mean, arguably the meaning of life, you know, that's what we have. And I think that 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 feeling of um, we're in it together, and um, you know, you, we have our little little you know special group of people, your family, your friends, whatever it is. I think that 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 feeling of having that that sense of connection with with other living living creatures at the same moment is so profound. And my hope is that as we sort of go from being just, you know, our, seeing the world through the lens of just our own little family or our own little neighborhood or our own little tribe that we can zoom out to see that this is a tribe of 8 billion people and that we are in it together. And the larger the 
backdrop of the universe is, the more we realize how special it is to be on this particular planet at this particular moment, and that um, the differences down here on Earth are totally superficial, um, and that you know the, the larger the universe is, the more we have in common with, with our other fellow Earthlings. So I think for a lot of us, your parents provided us with a way to think about how we touch the world and how we're touched by the world. And I think what you've offered us is another layer to that, the kind of effective dimension of that, right? The emotional and psychological dimensions of that, what that means in terms of personal relationships. I I see the benefits in being so transparent with folks, folks you don't even know. But what's the downside to being so transparent. Interesting. You mean like about like emotions and 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 well, experiences? You share so much. You share so much about your family, right? And you share so much about your own development. Well, so far it's been pretty much positive. I mean, no one's like said anything terrible. <laughs> um, and I think you know, I just think it's like with so much, just telling your you know, experience and being frank, I think it, I think mostly good comes from that. And it's been so interesting the ways in which people have, um, been surprised. And one of the things that, that really was so interesting for me was, um, you know, when you're, when you're open and frank, of course you're gonna, it's, it sort of reverses people's preconceptions if they're different than reality. And one of the things that I found so interesting is when the book first came out, I did some interviews and press with religious outlets. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, which was great. And like, I really, like, to me, I'm, you know, I don't want to only preach to the un, converted you know what I mean like I um and um one of the things that kept coming up was um people who were religious were really surprised that my parents did not censor religion um from me um and that you know I I write about um going to church with my nanny Maruha um and I write about I had a a little wooden Noah's Ark play set and things like that. And, you know, and that it wasn't forbidden. And not only that, but that my parents really felt that I would not have been properly educated if I didn't know at least the basic tenets of the major religions of the world, that that would be like a huge gap in my intellectual upbringing. And that, you know, there were, there, it's, important to know what people believe and that was one of the most interesting outcomes was that pe- for me was that people were mm-hmm. surprised that it wasn't like forbidden <laughs> in our household we talked about religion all the time and we talked about you know um the history of the world and it's impossible to separate that from what people believe and you know the worldviews that have um shaped decisions and you know, wars and all sorts of things that that are, you know, central for any young person to understand, you know, how did we get to this point in history? And I think, you know, that connects in a lot of ways to what's going on in the culture right now, this idea that if something is uncomfortable or difficult or tragic or upsetting or heartbreaking, that it's too much for children or Mm -hmm. young people to 
think about because they're so delicate, they can't know that our species has been utterly horrible to one another for many points in history. Right. And like, I just think that that idea, that the idea that you're going to come out of an education system where no one must know how things actually have happened and then go out and then a generation of kids are going to grow into adults who have to make decisions that write the rest of, you know, the next chapter of human history is so outrageous that, that, I don't know. It's, to me, there's there's a connection between that that idea that you should as I mean, of yeah. course, there are things that are age inappropriate. But as a person, you know, once a kid is, I don't know, 10 or 12 years old, like the idea that there's anything in human history that um, they cannot know is so <laughs> horrifying to me. And I just think that, you know, no matter what we believe, we have to know what brought us to this point and what other human beings believe right now and why and why it's important to them. And I think that, you know, for those of us who are not religious, I think understanding what other people believe helps us be more respectful and able to connect with people who have different views. Yeah, and it's, yeah. it makes it harder to just dismiss other people, um, even if they have diametrically opposed right. ideas. I want to latch on to that idea of what we know for just a second and ask one last question with respect to your parents. So my my assumption is lots of people at least implicitly assume they know your parents because they know their work. And it seems to me there are ways in which you writing about your childhood, your parents, um, kind of serves to distinguish the reality of your family from the popular perception of your family. So in terms of us outsiders, what do we typically get wrong about your parents and their philosophy of life? Oh, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that their public selves and their at home, you know, private selves is pretty close. I would say one thing that probably maybe does didn't always come through or doesn't always come through in the public version of my parents is just like the just like silliness that we, <laughs> that, that we had at home and like the sort of just like um you know the, the I think that that's probably something that people don't really associate that much with my dad is like a sense of like silliness and playfulness um that he um definitely had and my mom has and I think that you know that kind of thing is you know, it's just different when you have little kids and you're at home with them versus when you're like, you know, giving a lecture. <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's appropriate, I think, for to not always spill over into the public persona. But yeah, I think that that, you know, the, the thing that is so um, that in both their public lives and their personal, you know, at home, private lives that is so overlapping is this patience with explaining difficult things mm. to people who are not experts in that subject and that willingness to explain really complicated things really simply it's such an amazing quality for a you know for science communicators and such an amazing quality for parents of small children and so i really benefited mm. from that um and the like and i write about this too this kind of like yeah 
joyfulness about a really good question. And like even the really long, like, well, why? Well, why? Why? <laughs> um, that small children do, you know, feeling a, um, a sense of like, okay, this is good. You know, even it, like sometimes it's inconvenient. I mean, I have a four and a half year old. So like, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's inconvenient. Sometimes you get to a point where you're like, I don't even know how to define this word, that, <laughs> you know, is so, so much a part of our lexicon. But I think that that idea that this is like a basically very important, very good thing to have a child who asks questions and that, you know, there's so much in society that squashes that at some point and that if you as a parent mm -hmm. can just keep it going as long as possible, you know, that that's really a gift to your child. And, and my parents were really, um, willing to do that. And I think, you know, and, and, and they were really, overjoyed if I asked a question to which they didn't know the answer. Um, and that is something that was so mm. great because it encouraged my curiosity. Um, and it, and it also showed me that, you know, even very intelligent people don't know everything and there's no shame in not having all the answers. And that, that like the important thing is to ask good questions, not to know everything. Now I've heard humanist chaplains talk in this way. But that's really been the extent of this conversation as I've heard it. So I was really pleasantly surprised to hear you, uh, to, to read this. You say, for me, the biggest drawback to being secular is the lack of a shared culture. I can live without an afterlife. I can live without a God, but not without celebrations, not without community, not without ritual. It, it strikes me that for secular humanists, Although we do participate in ritual, right? If you think of ritual as repeated activity and founded space, every time we go to a conference at the yep. same time every year and do the same things, that is ritual. But we have a difficult, difficult time acknowledging that. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think so many secular humanists have a difficult time with ritual and acknowledging the importance of ritual? Well, I think with so many things, like the pendulum has to swing, right? You have one extreme where something is forced and this enormous obligation. And then once you free yourself of that, let's say if you were brought up very devoutly and you decided that was not the way you want to live your life, right? Of course, you're going to go far in the other direction and just distance yourself from anything related to that. I think that that makes sense. And for a lot of people, that is a completely understandable because um, you don't, right? You have a negative association um, <laughs> with some of that stuff. And right? Ritual and tradition, there's like this weight to those words that has all these other implications that don't really um, coincide with what secular humanist philosophy is. But if we can sort of take the connotations out of it and just think of it as these ways of just marking change, you know, so much of what life is, is changes, permanent changes and cyclical mm -hmm. changes. And it's really easy, you know, if we don't mark them, it's like, 
it's like that week between Christmas and New Year's where like every day is the same. You don't know what day it is. You don't go anywhere. You're in your pajamas. And like, you know, like kind of like what the beginning of the pandemic was like too, right? (laughs) And it just all blurs together. And all of a sudden you're like, what day of the week is it? What month is it? Time has passed. And I think that marking the passage of time, marking these changes, these, you know, I write about, um, rites of passage as this kind of like portal you know these moments where like a wedding like okay here are two people and you have this ceremony that's like kind of you know even the most secular Mm -hmm. wedding is like a little performance art piece a little play with an audience and costumes and a script where you go through this portal together you know and on the other side it's a married couple instead of two people who are not married (laughs) and like there's something about that that is really beautiful and the rituals even you know those really simple things that we do that maybe we don't think of as rituals like you were saying like you get up in the morning and you I don't know like do your YouTube yoga class or you you know every Thursday you see the same friends for a drink or you know all these things that are easy to not see as um, these like momentous spiritual experiences, but give us a sense of rhythm in life, Mm -hmm. I think are really Mm -hmm. powerful. And I think that having a community, and it's hard sometimes because, you know, if you're religious, it's built in having a community. You go every week to church, temple, mosque, whatever it is, and you see the same people and they're there when things are great to celebrate with you and they're there when something goes wrong to help bring food help out whatever it is i i know a lot of people who have said over the years to me that their you know mom or dad or whoever it is um it's not necessarily that they're so devout it's that they don't want to give up the community and the feel the network of people who they get to see and have these you know get to commune with and have these experiences with. And I think that that's something that's really powerful and and really important. And, you know, for most of history, we lived in our little groups and our little tribes and saw the same people every day. And then, you know, like the Industrial Revolution, among other things, came along and we're spread out from our families. And we don't have the same, you know, moments in life where everybody comes together in the same way. And I think that, you know, there's got to be a way, and maybe it's different for everybody, for each community, for each family, but there's got to be a way to create that and have some sense of cohesiveness without relying on a theology that we are not connected to anymore. So I I can go for a walk, um, walk down near the the water, this green space, and simply think about it in terms of my Fitbit and my heart rate and the number of steps, and and that pulls me into myself. But I could also think about it in terms of my relationship to those that I see around me, my right, my yes. relationship to nature, how I am a part of this, and and it seems to me to the extent. I take that walk and think about my heart rate, think about my steps, that's a habit. But to the extent I take that walk and I think about how I am included in something bigger than myself, that's a ritual. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even your heart rate, like that is still so amazing that we have, you know, this technology now where we can yeah. understand what's happening inside of us when we do these daily things. There's something kind of, you know, magic brought to you by science um, that we can find in so many of these things that, you know, there are so many elements of modern life where, you know, if it was sort of presented to us like a fairy tale, um, it, it would seem like it was this ancient, impossible idea. And because of the what we've been able to create through technology, through science, there are so many things that are, you know, it's so easy to be blasé about. And the example I always give is like DNA. How astonishing. Mm -hmm. There is a secret mm -hmm. code mm -hmm. in your blood that connects you right. to your ancestors, to everyone who's ever lived, that can solve questions, mysteries that we've had, you know, things, you know, like just figuring out which mummies in ancient Egypt, how they were related to each other, you know, these things that seemed like we could never understand for people who are adopted or who had, you know, a, a relative who was adopted, you know, being able to connect people who we had no idea, you know, there would ever be a way to solve these these mysteries. And, and you know, this feeling that it's it's in there, whether you believe it or not, and it's real, and it's true. And it's um, in all of us is so astonishing. But it's like, by the time you get to like middle school, and you're just doing your worksheet about alleles, it's like not that it's not presented in a way that makes us feel this sense of awe. Um, and that's something that we've only understood very recently, you know, let alone yeah, the things yeah. that um, we've understood for a few centuries uh, that are still astonishing. Uh, that is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. You know, and as I was reading the book, I'm, I'm mindful of when it was published, right? One of the first things I do is go to the copyright mm. page to get a sense of when this was done, what historical moment. Um, and, and so and I'm thinking about 2019 when it was published and 2022 and listening to you, I get a sense of the continuity in your thinking about ritual. But these past several years have, uh, several years have been hella hard and, you know, just tremendous disregard, just, just so many forms of, of violence around race, gender, sexuality, class, and then lump on top of that COVID. And it seems to me all of this can make it so very difficult to find anything about life worthy of celebration. And, and so I'm wondering, again, I have a sense of the continuity in your thinking about ritual, but I'm wondering if the past several years have fostered any changes with respect to how you think about ritual? Yes, I think that one of the things that has become really clear is the more isolated we are from one another and the less that we are together with people who are different from us, it does not serve us well. And that there are so many forms of violence and, and hatred and misinformation that spread when we are just alone with our devices and not seeing people and not getting a sense of connection and the idea that, you know, all these other people that 
it's so easy to demonize through a screen when you see someone in the flesh and blood and you realize this is another human being just like you. There is something about the isolation of the last couple of years that I think is has revealed some of our worst qualities as a species. And I think that, you know, everything you mentioned is heart-wrenching, it's heartbreaking how much of those qualities have been revealed in in the last couple of years, not to mention so much misinformation and so much anti-scientific worldview and, mm-hmm. and how often people are willing to lean on their worst fears as a source of information versus expertise of people who have devoted their mm-hmm. lives to understanding something. And I think the thing that will be really interesting when we fully come out of this from a standpoint of our rituals and our and our traditions are, you know, we've had so many holidays and so many birthdays and things that have been done in this different way right. because we couldn't fully do what we've normally done. Um, you know, lots of like, you know, three person Thanksgivings and things like that. And I think it'll be really interesting to see when we fully come out of it what we keep and what we let fall away individually and as, you know, a society, as societies around the world, like what changes are permanent and what we can't wait to get back to. And I think that will reveal a lot about us. But I think that sort of like we were saying before, you know, the profound tragedies of this period and the the you know some of the things that we've seen over the course of the last couple of years were always there and maybe mm-hmm. there's a positive th- element of s- certain things coming to the surface for us to reckon with versus just putting it out of our minds and and pretending that it's not as serious as it has been for so many people and you know the double-edged sword of the technology that lets us be so isolated and go down our wormholes um, alone the, the positive is we are more aware we have more access to understanding what the lives of people who we maybe would never meet are like and there is something really powerful about that and really important about that you know, maybe we have to go through some of this extremely difficult, painful, ugly parts of our society and and really come to terms with some of the worst elements of it in order to move forward. And that kind of goes back to what we were saying about like censoring things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's just not productive to say it's not happening or it didn't happen. No good can come from that. Coming face to face with reality and dealing with it is the solution to a lot of these things. And, you know, I think that, of course, it's horrifying to really look reality in the eye at times, but there's no way to move forward without doing that. I'm a secular humanist, but I'm also trained as a theologian, and much of my work is still theologically driven. So you have a friend in Houston. I love it. You know, and, and in part because I think we secular humanists have surrendered too much unnecessarily yes. to theists. That they have dominated this language. But the bottom line is this. This language is driven and constructed by humans to try to make sense of the world. And, and, and some of that may not work for us, but some of this language can be repurposed. It can be signified yes. and, and reimagined 
in a way that helps us to express the wonder, the openness of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Thank you. And, and I think one of the really powerful ways in which you do this is when you talk about love as a religion. You mentioned the ritual importance of music, of song, um, in relationship to love as religion. But what else about love relates it to this idea of religion? My husband and I have certain rituals that I write about in the book. And I think that whether it's like a date night or you... These things you do on your anniversary, you whatever, go on a little trip or something, you know, these kinds of things. When you get married and you have this ritual, you have this moment where you pledge in front of, you know, often in front of your friends and family, um, these vows of, of, of love and, and, and forgiveness and, you know, all these things that um, you say um, publicly and, you know, this, this great celebration of love, of joy, of that feeling. I mean, the feeling of falling in love, it's like if anything were ever sacred in this world, like the, when you wake up in the morning and it's the first thing you think of is the person and you just can't focus on anything else or like get through the day like that is just the best thing ever. And I think, you know, when you get to the point where, the, you know, if you get married, you have this moment where you make this pledge and then, you know, it's like it's it's as the years go by, you know, you have to actually make an effort to live up to those promises. And I think that, you know, the special things you do for one another, the ways you connect with one another, they bring you back to your love and your your connection and and the strength of that bond and i think that there's something about that that's very much like um a religion where you know you have appointed times where you have to remember this is what you believe this is what is sacred to you this is what is meaningful and beautiful and what gives life meaning often and finding ways to strengthen that connection and celebrate it. I think it's so, it's so beautiful and, you know, romantic. And, you know, I think that there's something really valuable about that. And, and it's so much fun <laughs> to do those <laughs> things. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, for those of us who are not religious and who are lucky enough to be in love and have our partner um, to go through life with, I think that, you know, taking any opportunity, and it's easy to say, like, oh, well, Valentine's Day is, like, just for, like, the chocolate industry to, you know, sell a bunch of chocolates. But, like, you know, whatever it is and whenever it's right for the two people involved to find those moments that connect you, that reconnect you to um, the deepest, most beautiful thing, I think that's really worthy of... of of doing and you know sometimes rituals and traditions sometimes you don't always feel like doing them and it doesn't always mm -hmm. feel like it's like you know but if you take the time I think it's really worth it because if they're based in something that is true and real and sacred um, that those those values must be upheld Absurdity is king and love saves us from it. Folks, that brings my conversation with Sasha Sagan to an end. Thanks for tuning in, checking us out. 
Folks, I'm Anthony Penn. You've been listening to Pen Drop. There's more to talk about, so check us out again. The Pin Drop Podcast with Anthony Pin is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. See you next time for Pin Drop. <laughs>